Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and zero carbon goals. So this week, Jeff, Alex, and I are joined by Dr. Peter Rickaby, man who should need little introduction to those who know the sector well, and to our podcast he's been on twice before. Yeah, twice. Um, 20 of those less familiar with him, he's an expert in the sector, who's devoted a career to improving energy efficiency in the built environment in the UK with a particular interest in retrofit. This week, rather than talk about a particular piece of work or technology, we wanted to talk about a slightly more esoteric subject. Who can you trust? So, in other words, how difficult it is to know what to do about anything. It's something we talk about amongst ourselves a lot, and presumably you, our listeners, find yourselves talking about much the same. Uh, now, the challenge here can probably be best summed up by the endless heat pump debate, in which we're asked to often hold two contradictory and correct positions at the same time. But we hear folks say, every home can be heated by a heat pump, and we're told at the same time, not every home is suitable for a heat pump, because you've got to consider fabric first first. I mean, they're both right in their own way, but it's not as simple as that, is it? We thought Peter would be a great person to talk about it. Uh, I mean, because of the length of breadth of his experience. And he's a great speaker. We took in the housing market, heat pumps, hydrogen, retrofit. There was more, but we haven't been able to publish all of it. And thankfully, in spite of our conversational meandering and rambling, we did actually manage to come up with, albeit a very short list, of people that we do think you can actually trust. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. And if you do all the usual things, please review, share, and Talk to us if you've got anything to talk about. The dpeaux.agency. It's all in the show notes. Cheers for downloading. Bye. You know, I was exactly, just dealing yeah. this morning with a lady whose house seems to have been mashed by an installer who is supposed to be complying with Pass 2035, but who employs the rhetoric coordinator and mm. seems to have done everything wrong. I mean, they seem to have done everything. We set the whole standard up to protect people against. But, right. Uh, it shows that however much you think the system is watertight it, it isn't you know and the, the weak spots begin to emerge yeah for sure well that's the theme of today's episode jeff and i spent last week accusing oliver canan and richard, richard Hegarty, yeah, yeah of it was we, complete nonsense they're just yeah. they're just just <laughs> speaking shite you know they're, they're good <laughs> academics doing good work and i think we were kind of I made some throwaway remark, which is Dan has built up into something it wasn't intended to about um, <laughs> about uh, about how um, we'll unmask the, the charlatans that they are, you know, <laughs> something along those lines, you know. Um, yeah. But when I talk about the charlatans in the industry and the need, you know, the, I mean, I've just written a white paper for BSI about Redford standards and what that's about is why we needed to have them, and it was absolutely about charlatans in the industry who are ripping people off and damaging their homes and damaging their health. But actually, it's kind of not polite to say that. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, but you don't have to be polite, to... Peter, because as, <laughs> as we were just discussing before we started kind of recording, P Peter is, uh, he's leaving us. He's abandoning uh, the broken Brexit Britain. Is that fair to say? <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's not far from the truth, actually, Jeff. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been, as this, as this move has approached, I've got more motivated by the fact that everything here seems to be broken and uh, not that you can find very many places in the world where it's not similar 
But uh, it certainly is the case that I'm thinking, why do we bother? You know, when I've put an entire career into trying to make domestic retrofit happen and to make it happen well, and actually we've made a minute bit of progress with all the stuff we've done, there's still a huge amount to do. And it, it, it's I'm going to hand the baton to other people and say, you know, you have to get on with it. One I think thing you've I done have... an awful lot of the intellectual heavy lifting on this stuff, and it's just a question of uh, the, the 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 difficulty is just forcing people to listen and forcing uh, the ch the change to actually happen. You know, yeah, and dealing with the politicians who are mealy mouthed at the best of times. Yeah. yeah. For your next issue, if I get round to doing it, Jeff, I'm going to write something about who's inspiring. Because there mm. are quite a lot of young people out there at the moment who are inspiring organisations like Architects Climate Action Network, for example, and the equivalent in Scotland, mm. who are really doing interesting work and have loads of energy and commitment and dedication and so on. Uh, and my only kind of comment to them is, this is all great, but you've got 27 million of them to do. So mm. let's, not, let's not piss about, let's do it at scale. You know? And I, I'm coming more and more to understand that doing things at large scale is different from doing them well individually. For sure. So, I, I'm actually, um, in case anybody notices strange noises uh, in the background here, um, uh, or rather different strange noises to the strange noises you normally hear, um, uh, I, uh, I am today at the Irish Green Building Council's conference um, in Dublin, in the Gibson Hotel, and I'm sitting at a kind of an island unit next to a bar with people around me people milling around me so occasionally i've, I've had people Two people have gone across in the background yeah and, and there's some, some people they haven't been holding pints though no oh, no <laughs> well, it's a bit it's early a, it's a bit early <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah you know they've gone to an early house first yeah exactly but no uh, it's it, i have to say though it's extraordinary because I've, I've been coming to their conferences for years and the irish green building council are, are an amazing outfit actually it's extraordinary to, to how radical they've been able to be because green building councils tend quite often to be because they're kind of consensus building and they work with the construction industry. They, you know, they can end up being compromised, I think, at times. Um, and the Irish Green Building Council have been able to be really um, uh, pushy and, and, and engage with the construction industry. Yet, and yet have people like Pat Barry saying things like in our magazine, like their CEO saying things like, um, uh, including car parking and housing in the climate emergency is uh, uh, it was an analogy he used for it, but he said it was it was as daft as whatever insert uh, something that you're you're outraged by, you know, um, and um, and the engagement now at the highest level from like the biggest banks from the from the from the the, re the developers the real estate sector is extraordinary. It is I have not. I don't know how to process it, frankly. You know, I, I'm still I'm one of these I like the band before they were cool kind of people, and um, and I, I I'm not <laughs> part of me. I don't I'm not pleased. <laughs> well, I think that what part of that, Jeff, is that we have to sort of let go. There's a relatively small community of us who've been driving this stuff and pushing it hard, uh, kind of crying in the wilderness to start with, and then making a bit more progress. But as it becomes mainstream, as because more and more people get involved. You got this stuff going on that you didn't know about, and yeah. that actually is really good. And we just have to let go and let people do it now. And so that's that's my interest in who are the inspiring people who are just doing it out there. Isn't there a bigger problem though? Because I'm trying to think of myself again as a, a lay person who is not part of the sort of the, the sector at least two years ago, and with my best efforts and all the research I was doing, 
there was nothing out there that I could find. There were no breadcrumbs to help me, the layperson, find that information. Because I think that that is also the key. It's like we have everything. Like Dan always says, we have all the solutions out there. You've been working. You said you've dedicated an entire career to it. And yet we're here today complaining that things are not happening the way they should be. But I see also the problem that the, 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 the major public or the general public themselves are hardly aware of what's going on in, in here. I think that's, that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks is that your average householder in either country does not know that their house needs to be significantly yeah. improved. Mm. And nobody's giving them the message. Nobody's threatening them with regulations and standards. There's not much money on offer. Um, if people knew that they had to do serious things to their homes, they would take that into account when they bought them. Yeah. When they rented them, they'd make a provision for improvement budgets when they buy and so on. But nobody really in the institutional sector is, particularly on the government side, is willing to say to people, you are going to have to spend a lot of money improving your homes. And we will help you, but we will also regulate. It's carrots and sticks. But I think um, there's a kind of cowardice on the part of politicians, which is driving that issue. Um, they don't want to say to everyone, you have to improve your homes, because they think that those everyone won't buy, won't vote for them. You know? Well, yeah. they've got this rose-tinted view, don't they? I mean, this kind of, uh, you know, wasn't it great when we were young, you know, when we were kind of, uh, you know, uh, open no. fire, open fires, miserably cold. Chiseling <laughs> frost off the inside of your window every Slop, morning. Slopping out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, pr- that's excuses. That's horseshit. Like, standard. Uh, I, I agree that they are using this romanticism, but... Like that's just a, a bit of performance that masks what's really going on, which is the, the Ponzi scheme of the housing market. And one cannot possibly contemplate interrupting or creating any sort of friction for that, lest the whole house of cards come tumbling down. Yeah, but it's happening anyway. I mean, the, the discussion today, Pat Barry, the CEO of the Irish Community Council, in his opening address, um, we're able to talk about from an EU taxonomy perspective and with stuff that's happening, the way the, the real estate market is, is moving on ESG, um, uh, he, he, he's confident enough as, as a radical in the space to be able to basically say, look, you know, the bigger developers are doing it. in our, Because in Ireland, they are now. They're start, I mean, we had a guy um, from... But you uh, are Neil, blessed. We, we had a guy, Neil Menzies from Hibernia Reist. Are they in the UK as well? A real, real estate investment trust, Hibernia. They're big, big operator here. Talking about... Um, they work there. They're now uh, uh, designing their uh, their uh, property, uh, you know, their their investments to LETI standards, their energy use intensity, because they found that the the energy performance certs, the, the BERs as they're called here, um, on on notionally great buildings, um, are are performing very poorly in reality. So they've so they're going back and committing and saying, we look, we know we can't. We have to engage at the earliest design stage of these projects, um, uh, and and we've got to set really robust targets, um, and then follow it through from a post occupancy evaluation perspective. It's bizarre to hear these things coming out of these kinds of mouths, but um, but Pat made the point that he was able to say, look, we're kind of there with the bigger developers, but the vast majority of construction, uh, and this I want to bring up what Peter was saying, um, ha- is done by smaller builders, and and uh, and then you have a, or he's the majority, I don't know, uh, and uh, and then you've got of course the 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 homeowner kind of sector as well. So we wanted to talk to you today, Peter. One of the things we, we were t- interested in talking about is snake oil. Right? Yeah. Um, 
But well, who do you trust? It's uh, stakeholder being the metaphor for it. But, yeah, and like, it, it you've been cruel. There's, there's only one byword: trust no one. <laughs> this is like, but to Alex's point, like, how do you know what you should be doing? How can you make sense of what you should be doing? That people contact me all the time, not selling stakeholder, but saying. I want to do this. I'm committed to doing something to my house or my homes or my building. and But I don't know who to trust. I don't know where to get expert advice. Everybody's telling me contradictory things. Mm. Some consultants say one thing, some another. Some suppliers say one thing, some another. And so we've left the market in a really poor position where it's very difficult for your average householder, for example, to know who, where to find someone that they are prepared to trust. And of course, what we've done is rather than letting the industry build trust by having great relationships and doing great work, we've kind of regulated it instead to make sure it doesn't misuse whatever trust it does get. And so we're, it's still not the right arrangement. What we need is out there lots of people who know what they're talking about, are reliable and trustworthy. And we probably need some kind of badge. Mm. that says, you know, I'm a good guy. You can believe what I say. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> This is, see, you were just referencing the fact that the old guard need to begin to let go. And like I would fundamentally disagree with that because you need the the young Turks coming through. They need a bit of the sage wisdom of the old hands, the people who've been there. Depends on which old hands it. you have, though. There's a lot of old people who haven't a fucking clue either. Like, not like <laughs> Prince Charles's hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, I mean, that's a whole issue about what incident memory really i mean endlessly we find ourselves reinventing stuff and re-educating new managers new politicians new civil servants new companies oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and we don't seem to have a way of kind of embedding knowledge and experience into the industry in a way that people take account of so most of my learning well it came from lots of places but most of it about retrofit came from the retrofit for the future program Mm. And there's a little report and there's lots and lots of data on the web and there's quite a lot of experience. But it actually, it's mostly in my head and the heads of about 20 other people who are on the technical evaluation committee. And I'm, I'm not sure we've, I mean, we think we've put it in the public realm. I don't mm. think we've embedded it in the industry mm. as well as we would like. So there's, I think we, we need better me mechanisms for that. But ultimately, you've got to train the next generation through their formal professional training mm. to do things right with the right knowledge. And it takes time and to get another generation of retrofit professionals, for example, will take us, you know, 10 years, probably. Surely part of this has got to be about finding a way to reward people and recognize people who have not only worked on these projects, but have hung around after and, uh, and, and uh, have, you know, where, whereas data has been made available on how the building actually performed um, and what the customer's experience of that was, you know, what the building user's experience of that was as well. Um, that, you know, I know that's going to be messy at times, um, but building, stitching that in somehow, uh, I would feel it, it's in the same way that, you know, um, this happens informally and in all the wrong ways that uh, at times where people were, rely on word of mouth or referrals, you know, from 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 friends and family or whatever. Um, and of course, 
you run into the issue of people getting work done in their house. And unless there's a lot of people will tend to think they've done a good job or they've, they've made the right decisions because, because they don't have the critical faculties to assess it or they're too, too invested emotionally otherwise in, in what, what's been done. Um, but that kind of thing of, 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 uh, of for, trying to formalize that and capture um, feedback uh, from real projects uh, has to be central, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, the architectural profession has been bleating about that for years. You know, architects do a job, they get to practical completion, they do the defects period inspection, and then they're gone to the next job. And if there's, a, if, it's, if there's evaluation and follow-up and monitoring and things in the budget, it gets cut mm. as soon as the budget's over. As soon as you're over the budget early in the process, that's what gets cut. Um, and so we, we're continuously foregoing the learning. And I mean, I've come, there is a community, obviously, of BPE people who do building performance evaluation and are keen to promote it and think we should do more of it. I, I completely agree with them. But actually, they're still working on something that's a bit clunky and a bit expensive. And, mm. and kind of my view is that actually we should do permanent monitoring on all buildings. Mm. Yeah. When you fly across the Atlantic on an Airbus, it has telemetry that tells it tells Airbus when something's wrong before the pilot knows. Yeah, yeah. That's what we should be doing with buildings. We should be continuously producing a stream of uh, data that tells us how it's performing and compares it or allows us to compare it with what we expected. But there's, a, there's not much of a culture for that. When we wrote PAS 2035, I put in that we had to agree what the intended outcomes of each project were with the client. And then afterwards, we had to evaluate it against those intended outcomes and see whether they've been achieved. And I thought that was pretty basic. You know, <laughs> any, any industry that's worth its salt at least sends a questionnaire to its clients that says, did we do what we said we would do? Yeah. You'd be amazed at the, first of all, the amount of resistance to that. Mm. And secondly, hardly anyone's doing it. That's a big chunk of past 2035 that's just being overlooked. It's not being done. Well, it's a can of worms, isn't it? Unless you know that you're doing good work, it's a can of worms, right? That's right, because <laughs> you're going to find out things you don't want to know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think yeah. I think it's like, to me, it's there is actually people doing it, and it's the the Googles of this world that are putting their Nest thermostats in the buildings, and may, actually the public are putting in a lot of sensors. Even our phones are you know, a bunch of sensors, a microphone permanently on, Alexa is there listening to everything we do, analyzing how we talk, the temperatures of what these homes are coming through. So people actually have embraced that technology, but what they want is uh, the, the fun stuff. They don't want yeah. to be told about this is good for your house and its performance and all that sort of stuff. I think, honestly, all that terminology in the industry needs to be changed and brought up to, you know, the next, the new generation of, you know, the young, younger generation and how they talk. You know, at the moment, if you start talking about that in that language, everyone's going to sort of turn away and start playing on their phone or, or changing their, their little smart thermostat. So yeah. what can we do to make, create demand for this stuff that is, in a, in a sense, fun um, and interesting and let then in the background all this serious monitoring happen for the, for the good of the, uh, the building stock? Why try and make it fun? It's not fun. It's boring well then like well, it's it no, well, no, but no, there's, there's no, no, it's boring <laughs> like is my heat pump performing properly don't give a shit is That's my house saying. is well, can my I house to eat this week you know well, uh, is my house warm enough 
That's what people care about. Like, yeah, yeah. like it's not fun. It's like basic expectations: food, no, no, shelter, it, water. Call it what you like. like but it's still fun. It's people like, love these gimmicks. So, I, you, but no, no. The, 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 the bit I'm getting at is it's much more akin. Like it, it feels like it's more akin to what uh, Peter was saying about the telemetry or the the pilot. The pilot just wants to get on with flying the plane. In the mm. background, the system is monitoring to see whether the whether the system is performing at the level it's supposed to in this instance to prevent everyone from dying like that's that's what it's it's there to do if we're looking at heating if we're looking at heating systems you've got like to open the first can of worms heat pumps complicated systems where they're building in monitoring systems which can be accessed remotely so the mothership knows whether the heat, heating system is performing optimally or needs to be yeah. addressed or improved. Like, you don't need the homeowner involved in that. There's no need for fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't... Like, you let do, them just enjoy you have to have it. a heat pump in the first place. At the moment, most people will say gas is better. A lot of people are still saying that having a gas hob is better than having uh, an electric hob instead or um, induction hob. So you've still got to change perception and you've got to create demand for all this stuff. And then you've got to do it in a way that people are going to be happy to do it. And it's an, a natural step rather than going, this is really complicated and worrying and boring, et cetera. You have to turn and change the narrative so that people go, I want this. I want this new thing. Oh, I've got this subscription thing, et cetera, et cetera. That's yeah. really cool and fun. Well, maybe what we need to do, and sorry, Peter, for the, the, advising you on and the three of us writing on all the time, um, but um, monitor the bad buildings and have, it's, it's, it's like, um, uh, I remember in The Simpsons, there was an episode where Homer was trying to be an inventor and he invented an, uh, an everything is okay alarm, which kind of kept on blaring all the time while everything was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, we need, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I think the sensor thing is really interesting. I was talking to an architect um, who's just completed a, a, a retrofit, uh, an interfit on on, uh, on this house. Um, and it's still there's still kind of dust from the from the, the lime plaster I think coming off the, the building and, and the, the filters are are clogging up and so on, and he's looking at the indoor air quality uh, sensors and so the the the, uh, the the data coming out of his data loggers and so on, um, and I kind of put it to him, is there a, a risk for him, uh, especially if you're somebody who's kind of prone to anxiety, um, of uh, if you're seeing a CO two levels rising or or PPM or whatever it is that you're looking at, um, uh, does that potentially have an adverse health consequence? Because you're 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 panicking about things to, uh, uh, about what might be quite normal uh, variations or oscillations in uh, in in you know that, that are acceptable for short periods of time, whatever you know. So there is a kind of question here about how much of this data we really need from a punter perspective. I don't know, you know. Well, I think you also. I don't think you can just have the data you have to have the ability with some experience to interpret it properly because you can panic people if it's if they're mm. lay people i was just looking this morning at some data through switchy on a flat one of a set of flats in southwark that we've put some new ventilation systems in and we put switchy in and there's one flat that we get reports it's got lots of mold which mm. ventilation system was absolutely put there to get rid of so i'm looking at the data and I'm thinking, okay, this house has got the thermostat at 25 degrees. It's being heated 24-7. The temperature is not getting above 22 somehow. Mm-hmm. And the RH is way up and there's mold everywhere. I can't actually fix that without going there and talking to the people. It has yeah. to be an interaction. It has to be me using the data to inform me 
yeah. to have a helpful conversation with the people who are there. They're probably got the windows open. They're probably from, they've probably come from somewhere hot. They don't like the cold weather, but they're finding the, the, the dwelling too difficult. Mm. Who knows? But until I go there, I'm not going to know. And I can't put lots more stuff in. Mm. And then, I mean, the same project, we put some CO2 sensors in the bedrooms to see whether the ventilation system was actually keeping the CO2 levels down. But the, the contractor put the CO2 sensors up on the wall in the, in the main bedroom, and the sensor that he used has got a red light on it, a little red LED, which is fine when you put the thing in in the day. But when you go to bed at night and the room's dark, there's this damn great red light that just keeps you awake all night, you know? And so it's just simple stuff like that that we just need to have the conversations with people about and get them to do it right. And so we're not really at the point yet where we can just use the data. We, we still have to have a, an engagement. We have to use the data to support the conversations that we do, that we have with the people, whether they be professionals, builders, or occupants. Well, yeah. this is basic user experience stuff. Like the data is just numbers, facts, if you like, but facts without context. Exactly. Well, you can't really make any sense of them. Like the uh, the story that Jeff tells about the passive house development with the zinc roof, which prevented the oh, massive overconsumption of energy. Uh, In one of the units, yeah, yeah. One of the mobile phone signal was being blocked. So the young lass was hanging out the window with the window wide open in order to be able to use a phone. Like the most basic user experience of the structure being ignored yeah. and creating some baffling anomaly. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it is sorely lacking. I mean, this is what Bill Borders and Adrian Lehman have been lamenting for decades. Like we, and again, this comes back to why we don't want to talk about this in, in the UK in particular, because of the house of cards related to property valuation. Houses are built to be bought and sold, not to be lived in. No one really cares. Like John Bagley from Countrywide joined us the other week. And these concerns about energy performance and environmental performance, they are creeping into conversations at high levels, but they're having no impact on the market because the market is still just thinking quarter to quarter. But I think that um, the way to solve that is to set standards for energy efficiency well in advance, ratcheting yeah. up standards, so that when I buy a house, the, the cost of the improvements I know I'll have to make before I can sell has to get cost has to get priced in. You mean minimum energy performance standards? I mean, that, yeah, this, is, this yeah. is what the EU is actually. This came up today at the conference. We had um, Audrey Nugent from the World Green Building Council um, presenting on uh, the next revision to the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, um, and which is currently in at the kind of trilogue phase, where there's the the, the three kind of heads of the you know, the European Council, the European Parliament, and the and the Commission um, are negotiating over the over the final text. Um, and uh, by uh, which is written by Kieran Cuff, another friend of the podcast, um, uh, Dublin MEP um, oh. Green, um, and um, one of the elements that's causing an absolute furore in uh, parts of Europe, in Italy, I believe, in particular, uh, unsurprisingly, given what's uh, what's happened to that country recently politically, um, is um, uproar over proposal to have minimum energy performance standards. Um, uh, and you can see that this needs to be handled very carefully because, you know, um, you can't turf people out of buildings uh, because they're not energy efficient enough, right? You've got to find a way to, especially with when you've got like bloody housing crises, you know, um, 
Well, actually, that's happening, though, Jeff. If you look at the private rented sector in the UK, they've set some minimum energy performance standards for 2028. And the landlords are saying, we can't afford to improve our houses to this standard. It's not a very onerous standard. It's EPCC. But mm-hmm. they're saying, we can't afford, we're not willing to invest in improving these homes. We're getting out of the market. And their tenants are being pushed out because they're selling the house. Yeah. Uh, so th- that's a kind of um, unintended consequence of setting a minimum standard that was perhaps a bit too much for the industry. And it has to be said that private landlords are the most recalcitrant bunch of people you could meet. But uh, And so I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for them. But we do, don't want private rented tenants who are usually in amongst the worst circumstances of mm. people in the housing sectors to be pushed out and made homeless or or sent to even worse places because they're, we've managed to institutionally deter that bit of the that sector of the of the market well so perversely perversely the impact of that so like the the individual the the private landlords who have one or two properties they don't want to invest their 10k minimum because they don't have access to the capital so they're selling which depreciates which takes a little bit of heat out of that sector of the the resale market which means that your bigger developers or your bigger private rental sector landlords are able to sweep in pick up those properties and to your point about the uh, getting retrofit carried out at scale they're coming in with an intention to do so in many cases because they can see the value in doing it to set themselves up long-term. My old neighbor, he was an estate agent. And while we were all hearing about the the problems with the market slowing down, conversely, he was seeing, he was getting fewer clients coming through the door because he, he used to manage a branch in London. But the clients he did were coming in saying, right, I want 100 flats over the next six months. Find them for me and I'll buy them. Because they were, they had access to the capital. They'd done their risk assessment in terms of what they were going to have to invest to meet these minimum energy performance requirements. Okay. I, I can do it. So I you're mean, not worried, Dan, then, in this case? No, no, about- I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fucking terrified because then you're consolidating the 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 power with fewer and fewer landlords and then you create well our our, our fewer big oligopoly. landlords are, are, are is an oligopoly worse than uh, than a bunch of uh amateur landlords who who don't have the capital and and and, and could be complete scumbags as well you know well those homes will <laughs> never re-enter the market so whilst uh yeah. whilst by owning your own home is supposed to be the thing you aspire to yeah like you're you're diminishing the opportunity for people to be able to do it whilst telling them that that is the only route out of this this rent you just need more you you just need future kind of government policy to make it uh all of a sudden very unattractive for big funds to own lots of property you know i don't know um can you imagine that ever happening here (laughs) but it's it's about monoculture policies being wrong you know the, the, the conservative policy has always been homeowners homeowners owners build lots of houses for sale and, and very reluctantly build social rental, but actually a good housing market needs all the sectors in you know in good health and thriving because there are going to be people who want to rent, there are going to be people who need to rent, there are going to be people who want to buy, there are probably people who need housing that would rather not buy. Mm. And, but we're yep. not catering for them at the moment. And what we're doing is, I went to a very interesting lecture not long ago by a, a, a housing economist from UCL. 
and um, it was the Neil May Memorial Lecture. Actually. Oh yeah, Jeff will remember Neil May. Uh, yeah. But he was saying that amazing. You know, there, yeah, there isn't a housing supply problem; it's an allocation problem, and it's about building the wrong type of houses in the wrong place at the wrong price. It's like that old um, yeah. Morecambe and Wise thing, isn't it? With uh, was it Andrew Previn or something? Playing all the right notes, just not just just not in the in the right order. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what actually one of the things that this guy said that I thought was really interesting was that if we go on building substandard housing that's not zero carbon at this price and not doing enough retrofit, the entire whatever it is sixth or seventh carbon budget at 2050 will be taken up by the housing sector. There'll be nothing left for anybody else. Mm. Because the current trend will be that it will there'll be so much carbon being created by poor quality housing, either because it's been built badly or because it's not been retrofitted, that mm. we won't have anything to spend on anything else. One of the things we've been dealing with in Ireland or looking at, um, not dealing with, um, is uh, underutilization of property in some cases, and in, uh, and stuff like um, I, I presume you have this in the UK. So we have a we have a policy called uh, fair deal. I think it is um, where um, when an elderly person uh, uh, is unable to live in their home anymore and and is looking to move into kind of a, a care home of some some sort, um, if they don't have the resources to pay for to go private themselves, uh, they go, they go to uh, the they have to reach an agreement with the state whereby um, they uh, uh, something like eighty percent of their income. Um, goes to the state, um, and there's an agreement uh, that uh, a, a fraction, like a quarter or so, of the house sale of the proceeds of the house if they own their own home, um, will go to the state when it's uh, you know when it's eventually sold. Um, and there's some analysis indicating that we may have um, oh god something over five percent or more of our housing stock, uh, you know, vacant homes, um, which um, which many of which could be tapped into if we just tweaked this policy to make it attractive for the families of these people to rent them out um you know uh, maybe maybe take more of the sale price of the property uh, you know eventually and less of the rental income less of the income um to encourage people to to put tenants into the buildings and so on but there's just you know it just feels like at times there's a lack of this kind of bigger picture uh, to really think these things through um and uh, and uh, i don't know whether you have similar problems in the uk or not though Yes, and they're more complicated, I think. There's been a long battle between the NHS and the social care sector and elderly householders who need to go into care about what happens to their homes and how much of their home's value can be deployed to pay for their care and how much can't be. And a lot of elderly householders who need care not willing to give up the value of their home because they see it as something that they want to, their children to inherit. Mm. rather than the state to take and th that's never been resolved there's obviously a tension there and there mm. are some some injustices and some things that make sense in there but it's never really been resolved nobody's had the courage to come to grips with it and you know it just seems you're talking about people who vote you're talking about people the most active voters out there as well so um, yeah that's right and usually the most conservative voters with a small c yeah so it's quite difficult to to influence them um yeah. very difficult it's... We were meant to be talking about snake oil, though. This has gone a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah, I was... Back to snake oil. I was going to ask about hydrogen myself. Bang, he throws a grenade in. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, yeah. I think that hydrogen is a complete non-starter and that 
the the hydrogen lobby is simply the gas distribution lobby pushing back to try and preserve its existence. I read a lot of work that was done by my colleagues in UCL and in the, the CREDS, the Centre for Research and Energy Demand Solutions, which is a UCL Oxford thing. Well, the thing, the reason it doesn't make sense is, I think, very simple. If you get some zero carbon electricity from your wind farms and you make it, use it to make hydrogen by electrolyzing water, you use a lot of energy to do that and, you, and there's a big efficiency drop. And then you send that hydrogen to your house and burn the hydrogen in a boiler. It's not going to be more than 90% efficient condensing boiler. Mm. Overall, the efficiency of the process comes to 62%. If you take the same zero carbon electricity that's coming from your wind farm, send it straight to the house and put it through a heat pump, you're going to get 250% out of it. So for me, it's an unbrainer. Why would you do? The only reason you would, you would do hydrogen would be to try and keep the gas network in place. Mm. Actually, the gas network would still need major modification to handle lots of hydrogen because it's got different... Well, I just think as well, you know, uh, and it's funny, we see this in the context of heat pumps about um, rules around um, uh, certain refrigerants, the amount of it, you know, like if you've got a flammable refrigerant like uh, R290, how much of it, you're only allowed to have 0.15 of a kilo of the stuff um, in inside the house if you've got an indoor unit, you know, uh, uh, and um, if you've got the refrigerant coming indoors. Um, and, um, uh, and yet... <laughs> And yet, uh, we, we have not only kind of a permanent supply of, of natural gas coming into most homes, but we're talking about bringing hydrogen into the mix. Uh, <laughs> it's just uh, the, the, well, the, the lack of consistency is just is absurd, you know. But well, I think I, the other thing about hydrogen is that there are some things we need to use the hydrogen for. Mm. Big vehicles, probably planes, mm. uh, maybe even ships. Um and those are things that where batteries just ain't going to work. They're just too big and too heavy. Mm. Um, and so using the hydrogen to heat people's homes is nuts. In fact, I think probably using natural gas to heat people's homes 40 years ago was nuts. It would have been much better to use it all to generate electricity at that time. Mm. But where we are, I think we need to reserve the hydrogen for industrial processes, big vehicles, aircraft, and get on with using zero carbon electricity to heat our homes because it's just so much easier and more straightforward and more efficient. And well, that's hydrogen solves. Good, good. <laughs> Thank you, I wrote Peter. A, I wrote Everybody will move on now. <laughs> <laughs> good, yeah, so I, I don't see hydrogen as a big deal. I think hydrogen is, there are still people out there arguing for hydrogen. The problem, from my point of view, is that government listens to engineers. And engineers show up and they say to ministers and even to civil servants, oh, we've got the solution. Hydrogen will save you, or heat pumps will save you, mm. or whatever. And they're they're very easy to persuade that there's an easy solution, mm. and it's and it's very simple and straightforward. And that's the bit that gets into trouble because we had it recently with the announcement here that the way to solve the zero carbon issue is to do lots of local nuclear uh, and <laughs> uh, you know stuff like that, and all all the stuff that whoever it is, Babcock or Rolls-Royce are selling them, they believe that stuff. because And, and it's, a, it's a big version of snake oil. Mm. Yes, Minister, we'll build you 46 mini nukes scattered around the country. That'll solve the problem. Zero carbon electricity. 
course it won't, because they will, they'll never achieve that. They'll never do it. And there's all sorts of other reasons. But it feels like a simple solution. Mm. It's that. And also because we, as a, as a culture, we love new things. Like we love the idea that we're innovating. And instead of going back and looking at what we already have and how it can be used or how things can be improved, like the fabric first, basically, is just get your basics right. But again, it's not very sexy as, a, as, a, as an idea, whereas mini nuclear plants around the country or changing using the existing gas grid to put in hydrogen or this like cool tech, it's all that cool technology. And it's not really, it's, as you say, it's complete snake oil. It's just to, because... As a, as a well, you want to, you want, you want the nukes, the nuke plants with with uh, with hydrogen running side by side, so that one can blow up the other. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> want nuke plants that you can control with your smartphone. That there would we go. See. <laughs> yeah. I knew we'd get there. <laughs> it's it is a baffling situation. Like, heat pumps seem to be uh, consigned to that newfangled business that is baffling to people yet as Nathan gambling endlessly points out, like it's a really old technology. Look at your fridge, look at your yeah. air well, conditioning. I, I thought the uh, dialogue in your email about Jan Rosano saying you can heat any house with a heat pump and Marina Tapuzzi saying, no, you can't, you need to do insulation, insulation, insulation first. And, and I think you were absolutely right that you commented that they're both right. Yeah, it, it is true that you could heat any house with a heat pump, but if you heat one that's not very well insulated, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more. It's mm. going to be bigger and noisier and more resource consuming and all those kind of things. And then on the other hand, you know, I've been engaged with scale retrofit for the last year or so. It's actually bloody difficult to insulate lots and lots of houses really well. And so somewhere in between the two is the truth. This we is why I really... as much insulation as we can in. Yeah. But sometimes you can't this is why i'm really um excited about uh the aecb's new uh level one retrofit standard uh this so so-called heat pumpification focus standard um it's really interesting when you have uh, the anoraks and i mean that as a as a, a high compliment um who are not associated with a given technology coming to a conclusion it's very similar to the super homes recipe that that paul kenny and temporary energy Agency reached in ireland which is you know air tightness mechanical ventilation uh fabric where you can do it within reason um a whole house retrofit plan so that you're not locking out further fabric improvements and then run the flow temperatures um on your heating system design is that you can run the, the the heat pump at low enough temperatures so there's a pragmatism there and the other the missing element which i would because I'm, I'm very close to this in the context of the low energy buildings database redesign which is going to be used as the upload system for this as well uh training of certifiers for this and a uh a kind of a peer-based system with uh with uh, some review and with some you know how to handle projects which don't tick every box in their standard how you how you reconcile them and you know there's a thoughtfulness and a pragmatism there which i think is really positive um uh, you know I, I think letty has been going that way as well actually. Mm, yeah uh, and for me what you just said is about the richness that you have to have to deal with a really complicated housing stock in mm, either country yeah. uh, you've got to be able to have a multiple range of solutions and you've got to have people who know which ones are going to work mm. uh, so that, that there are no universal panaceas there no there are no one-stop solutions yeah yeah uh, on the other hand we can't do in the uk 27 million homes all individually and, and another million or so in ireland what we've got to do is have some way of aggregating and that's about 
building the knowledge base so that we understand how to aggregate and which solutions apply to which types of buildings. And I think we're groping towards that. And I'm, quite, <laughs> I'm quite pleased. Groping is a nice, it's a nice word yeah. to use, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've hit on, so in answer to the question, who can you trust? So uh, the ECB's retrofit standard is a positive step forward. And Letty, yeah. in a, a more general sense, and uh, uh, Oliver and Richard from last week. We, there, we, and and there's there's a cabal, there's a co- there's a cohort of, of people who you know uh, who who've been hanging around in buildings long after the, the they're finished and you know probing them and uh, groping them, yeah, <laughs> sorts for for years. And th- those people are invaluable. So this old guard, Peter, I'm yeah, sorry, we're not die, done with we're not done gonna, with you. Yes, you know, they're going to die out, Jeff. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, I I said to the AECB ten years ago. Get some younger members because you're all gonna you're all gray hairs. Yeah. This organization was full of gray hairs. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's all gonna die with you unless you get some new members. And they actually they did listen and they did get lots of new young people in. So that's good. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of encouraged by outfits like Architects Climate Action Network, which has got lots of young, energetic people in it who mm. are very mm. committed. So it's about handing that baton over, isn't it? But and they're they're aware. Well, I think the key point is that they need to know what we already know and what we don't know. Mm. And what they're doing at the moment is enthusiastically picking up issues. But what we need to say is, look, this stuff's done, but this stuff's still a problem. And uh, give them some steering, you know, steer them in the right direction. We need to find a formal way to to uh, to connect this, this infusion of energy and stuff with the actual expertise that exists there. Um, you know, there are... Uh, I'm trying to think of there are, I, I, I can think of specific people I know in the industry who've been knocking about for years, um, designing or claiming to have designed notionally green buildings. Who, you know, when you subject what they've done to scrutiny, don't really know their arse from their elbow. Uh, when it comes to sustainability, you know, and I see. Be careful hand, about there are there are what there are ones who've been doing really well. Yeah, and I, I've always thought of the AECB community and their equivalent people in Ireland. Yeah. as um, the kind of green cutting edge who are leading the way and that we learn from them, they will tend to focus on relatively one-off, simple-type projects. And we mm. need to learn the lessons, generalize them, and scale them up. Yeah, And and that's the, the link in the chain that I think has been missing to some degree, that there are people who know hugely how to do this stuff, but there's they're usually on a basis of one-off experience with small people. Well, I, I mean, I like the Letty mechanism. Because the Letty mechanism was to have a hundred authors, mm. their guide, and peer review everything with everyone. Yeah. So that yeah. eventually, you know, so all the kind of slightly woolly stuff or slightly edgy stuff got oh, yeah. smoothed out. Uh, so we end up with a very robust set of guidance. It's great. And actually, Joe Jack uh, from uh, Letty, Joe Jack Williams, I think, um, uh, from Fielding Craig. Yeah, Bradley Studios is here today at the conference, um, and I'm um, speaking an awful lot of sense. They're doing so much good work. They're actually, something we should give a shout out from. We have to have them on. There, um, we had somebody. In fairness, we did have a uh, your mate Alex James, uh, wasn't it? Uh, uh, who's involved in Letty? Uh, Alex. Oh, Jim, oh, you mean uh, yes, James Woodall. Oh, James Woodall. Yeah, we had him on. I'm not was, Alex was, James from Blur. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, we wouldn't have them on. <laughs> no, exactly. He's all too busy making cheese with the Tories and things, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah um, hobnobbing with Clarkson and Cameron. Yeah, on his picnic. 
Yeah, no, um, but but he, he was he, he mentioned a number of things that they've got on the go at the moment. Uh, one of which James referenced, which is this uh, OMG, uh, the Operation. What is it again? Uh, OMG to me is oh my god. No, that's <laughs> yeah. it. That's and that's where they've gone. It's kind of quite playful. Uh, it's operating uh, operational modeling guide. That's it. Um, okay. So it's a new uh, guide that they're that they've come come up with to try and help people to understand i think some some of the uh the modeling tools out there um and um and, and how to make sense of them how to use them sensibly um, well there's a whole other area for snake oil isn't it i know yeah, yeah. I, I, i'm minded of um going back to snake oil and people coming along with innovations and things i yeah. remember colin king saying when we were being put under pressure under retro standards task group, so he was at the bre at the time i presume was he well he after he retired actually okay he, uh, uh, his point was that there are people come along with innovations and they make claims for how they perform. And he said, models are not good enough yeah. to, to substantiate those claims. You have to test the innovation in real houses mm. and get yeah. data. So the modeling is a good starting place. It looks as though it'll work or it mm. won't. But in the end, you shouldn't accept an innovation into a standard or a guide or anything like that until it's been tested in reality and produced some performance data which brings you back to building performance evaluation again of course mm. um, yeah and so i think that's kind of a good line to take but but i i've been approached over the years probably every week by someone with some material or product or system or gadget that's supposed to save a third of the energy in every house you know uh, or something like that the most famous one was uh, insulating paint Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were approached about at uh, core and that as is the way with many of these people who have these ideas they do come along with a lot of numbers although so mm. the first thing you have to do is to really unpick the numbers and find out where they came from and who calculated them and so on and mostly they don't make sense um but also there's a sort of um i think there's an 80 percent rule involved out of five people who come with something that looks like snake oil Four, four of them will be snake oil, but one might be good. You know? yeah. And e even in the case of the insulating paint, which we were marshalling all our efforts to reject from core, um, Ian Orm, I remember saying, well, actually, if you've got some plates, places in your plant room where you want to paint some pipework and there's no room, you can't fit insulation on it, maybe you just paint it with this stuff and it'll have a small effect. So... You know, there are mitigating circumstances in lots of cases. Well, mm. getting back to the snake oil, the fast talkers often present the most uh, real-seeming cases. Like, yes, you're able they, to sell better. And the, the real building nerds, they find it much more difficult to make, to build their case in a way that's relatable and understandable. Well, I think a really good example of that is, I won't name it, but it's the the uh, passive stack ventilation with heat recovery product that you're probably all aware of mm. uh, that sold actually moderately well. And from the very start, it was a clear, it was clear that it doesn't work. It's, it's <laughs> contrary, it's contrary to physics, you know, and, and yet the guy who um, promoted it, um, who we all know well, and who does a lot of innovation produced the most amazingly rich and, um, comprehensive sets of anal analysis and graphs and data and, and numbers and test reports and all sorts of stuff. Uh, 
all of which were highly persuasive and lots of people spent quite a bit of money on it. If you think about the basic physics, it can't possibly work. <laughs> and, and I remember Jez Wingfield at UCL and I kind of taking the guy apart one day about it. But it, it, other people can very easily, I mean, Jez is the sort of person, whether you know him, but he's the sort of person who doesn't get distracted from where he's going. He's kind right. of stubborn about things. And um, a lot of people wouldn't be. They'd just listen to this stuff and believe it. Yeah. So we're back to this thing again. Who can you trust? Well, like Jeff often says, if you're explaining, you're losing. Like if people get it, then you're winning. And getting back to the heat pumps issue. So I got a text off of my mate uh, this morning who he, he messaged me. You know about this stuff, right? This is it's a screen cap from a Guardian article today about users, users uh, in their first winter with their heat pumps. And his comment subsequent to that was 16 degrees, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. That's freezing. And there's an article in The Guardian where uh, a heat pump, a u- first winter with a heat pump, the story described is, uh, where is it? The result is a warmed house, but it doesn't feel like a sudden improvement in temperature. Whereas in February, warming the house with a gas cost 12, warming the house with gas cost 12 pounds to maintain a temperature of 12 degrees per day with the 12 heat pump. degrees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the heat pump. Wow. Uh, Richard says he was able to heat his home to 16 degrees on comparably <laughs> cold days in March, yeah. a cost of between uh, seven and nine pounds. Like, so this is presented right. like it's a positive case. I read, yeah, that, he'll, he'll I read that article on. too, and I thought, what are they doing? You can't yeah. go around telling people to heat to 16. Yeah, keep most yeah. of his fingers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah. this is it. This is the nature of the discourse. Like, this is something Nathan Gamblin was posting about in the week, about how a lot of the people writing about this in the most prominent places, like within the media, they're absolutely fucking clueless. Like, yeah, they don't true. understand the, the the basics of it. I mean, this is something that's polluted the hydrogen discourse from the start. We, yeah. like, whether you're talking institutional, governmental, or uh, just basic reporting levels. But with the heat pump in particular, like folk not understanding the basic mechanics of it in a way that they can interrogate some of the, the most basic qualities that are being claimed or use cases or yeah. anything. Like we saw Duncan posting... Uh, erstwhile host Duncan Smith posting about the amazing success in the rise of heat pumps globally. Like it is, it is incredible that they're being taken up in the way that they are in progressive markets. But the first comment beneath his post was, well, it's no good for my house, is it? (laughs) 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 Like, well, he wasn't talking about your house. He was, he was making a macro case for it. And like, Everyone, no one knows how to talk about this stuff. Like everyone's yeah. confused. So well, I think just... also we're, we're in a situation where lots of those technologies are, because they're not well understood and there's not a well-developed industry, it's very difficult to be sure you're getting the right messages. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, if you've got a gas boiler, there's a zillion people in your town who can fix it for you and service it for you and sell you a new one and it'll work. And there's gas safe and all sorts of things to, to protect you. With heat pumps, it's a bit of a lottery, really. Who, whose phone number do you get? So I think that's an issue. And yeah. it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about not enough knowledge of who the trustworthy people are. Maybe we need institutional kind of ways of doing that. But also there's another point I have about 
those things. In retrofit in the UK at the moment, we're mostly doing, mostly funding programs that are aimed at fuel poor households. And, I, and we're getting lots of pressure from the government who funding the programs to build innovation into it because <laughs> certainly when the, the, the energy department was part of Bayes, innovation was the, word, the name of the, the word of the week kind of thing everywhere. Yeah, and I solid. think that actually experimenting with technologies that aren't well mature in the homes of fuel poor households is mm. mad mm. and should not be allowed. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at, if you look at um, when the UK, we have a huge budget deployed to innovate UK whose brief is to f- take new new ideas and in- innovation and test it and challenge it and do all the risk assessments and do all the monitoring and get it so that we understand it and then bring it to market. And I think that we should s- stop experimenting on the homes of poor people with a <laughs> highly risky way of doing things. We should. Well, they have to be the guinea pigs. Knows. You have to use the, the, the plebs yeah. as guinea pigs, Peter. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Start, maybe, start with the Scottish poor. That, that, that you know that would be that that would go down better with the Westminster <laughs> lot, wouldn't it? Yeah. That probably yeah. Would. <laughs> yeah I right. don't know. It, it's. But I think it's this obsession with. It's the same as this obsession with easy solutions. It's also oh, innovation will save us. So we'll. I know. We'll put innovation in everything, and it doesn't necessarily save you. It can get you into a lot of trouble. No, just I, the, the mantra that always comes to my own head is that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, you know. Um, um, and I think in, in this case, the, the area where, where innovation probably is justified across the board here um, and would have the potential to provide really good feedback really quickly is in uh, building user research in and post-occupancy evaluation in as a key requirement. And, you know, like quick, responsive under, uh, engagement with building occupants, uh, you know, uh, and you can start with the with the, with the poor, for instance, um, uh, find out uh, their understanding of using these buildings um, and how to put the messages, across, how to engage with them in a way that's going to help them to, to use the building properly. And, help, you know, go back to Adrian Lehman's, uh, uh, one of his broke, kind of broken record points. If people understand the design intent, they're much more forgiving. Get people to understand the building that they're in, um, make them feel a sense of ownership of it, um, and, uh, and empower them. Why is that not happening? It's a great idea. I couldn't obviously not agree more because user research is what we do. But why is that not happening? What are the blockers? Because in practice it sounds like it's easy to do. Like we just go in and talk to people, but why is it not happening? I think it's expensive, Alex, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a bit of the budget that tends to get combed out or you need an extra grant for, or something. Yeah. We haven't mainstreamed it into the development or retrofit process such that it's automatic. And as an author, imagine Volkswagen or Ford or someone putting out a product without, you know, continuously monitoring what the complaints and the breakdowns and the service issues were and continuously working on the product to improve it. We just yeah. don't do that. We deliver the building and we walk away to the next project. Well, Volkswagen is, Volkswagen's diesel record is, 
<laughs> Actually, evidence is the other case <laughs> where they gained. Thanks they for bringing this background to snake oil, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that the funny thing, though, that we don't spend the money at the right place? We're happy to do something now quickly because that's you know, demand is we want something that's affordable. It's the shiny new thing. We have, to, well, we have yeah. to pay for it anyway later. That's the ongoing problem. We always but, just leave it for later. But that's where we get into, I mean, that's the prevailing economic system. As much as we claim uh, to be driving towards okay. efficiency, inefficiency is much more profitable, so, so, and making money profit is all that really matters. Which so, is that is the reason for the the pollution of the hydrogen discourse, holding those revenue streams as long as you can, and preventing change because change gets costly. So, so the innovation here then is uh, a scalable, affordable feedback mechanisms and user research uh, mechanisms uh, with uh, with whatever you're doing in a building. That's yeah. that's the thing that should be. And also building knowledge into the process. I mean, if you like, the invention of the retro coordinator was supposed to be, let's put somebody into this process in the middle of the team who has got some at least some basic widespread knowledge of what the process is about and what the risks are and how to manage them. And it's been interesting because it's gone in some places, hopelessly wrong. I was dealing again this morning with a lady totally screwed up by her greenhouse vouchers grant. And the reason is that the retrofit coordinator is working for the installer. Mm-hmm. And that one mistake of allowing the retrofit coordinator to work for the installer means that he's supposed to look after her interests and protect her house and her health. But, she, but his boss, there's a, you know, there's a clear conflict of interest with what his boss wants. And we make one mistake like that and it doesn't work anymore. So things to do is find the key principles that we have to adhere to. So this is part of the reason why uh, we've, that between us, we've invested time into the low energy buildings database. Like uh, right enough, Jeff is getting paid, but Alex and I volunteered a whole bunch of time in sort of scoping out what that project could deliver over the long term. Right, because if it's a mechanism for collecting uh, use evidence of use of materials and strategies in homes in line with the building standard, that's excellent. Now, if you can begin, so anyone who's working on a development and wants to interrogate themselves, get in touch with Jeff or any of us or the ACB about joining forces with the LEBD, because the more data we can collect and harmonize yeah. so it's comparable the better a case we can build for the strategies that we're deploying. Uh, Well, it will enable us to test whether they're working. The next phase of that project is try and work out how to capture post-occupancy data, be it in terms of energy use or performance or whatever we can in a way that drags all of these bits of data together in a, a way that we can interrogate them at scale. Once you can start interrogating the data at scale, then you can start to see what works because you can take a macro view and you get into a micro view. And it's a bit like what uh, the guys at UCL are doing. It is UCL, isn't it? Taj and that. Yes. They're looking at Smart Energy Institute. Data. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a bit like what folk in Oxford are doing that we've been speaking about with Marina. Uh, like all sorts of people are doing all sorts of bits. Like it's a bit like, uh, what was it? Carbon Buzz? What that was yeah. doing? Like... They all get dumped because none of it's harmonized. Everyone has discrete little bits, segregated bits. They keep hold of it. I think also there's not enough in all that 
monitoring. It's all a bit too techy. There's not enough interaction with people. Mm. Because my experience is that when you go on an estate and you go into people's homes and you talk to them, you discover that their lifestyles are not what you assumed Mm. in your technical design. And that sometimes miles away from it, you know, mm, and yeah. and so you've got to have continuous feedback from real households who say this worked for us, this doesn't work for us, and and you can get to the bottom of why that may be if you can. Uh, it's not good enough just to read the smart meter. It's not good enough just to have some some loggers in the house sending you information or a switchy or a nest or whatever. You've got to have some kind of dialogue with the people, and that's one of the things what I like about switchy actually that. I don't know whether you know, but they're now they're doing surveys of people's homes using the switchy device. Mm. So there it is being a smart heating controller and it, for them, for the householder, and it's being a, um, a, a data collection device for people like me who want to know what's going on and what the RH is and what the temperature is and when the boiler's firing. But actually, they can also send you a thing that goes bleep on your switchy. Could you answer a few questions for me? And you can give them a survey with multiple choice answers about have you got condensation and mold? Is it warm mm. enough? Is it noise? Is the ventilation noisy? That's great. All those things. Yeah. So yeah. suddenly start to interact with the people as well as with the numbers, I think really helps. I think the problem is, is that people don't understand the value of that research. A lot of people, we're again, we're too conditioned to get the data out of the system and just go, I can read this data, I can get some averages and that's good enough and I can make an assum- a working assumption and that'll work well. Because there's a number of people that we talk to all the time where we say, if you don't talk to your users, you're basically building something for the person who is yourself that you're looking in the mirror because you're thinking, yes, I know about my my users. I know what they want, but actually you're talking about yourself or your circle of friends or your immediate colleagues. And it's very, very hard to convince people that that research is or the actually speaking to people, getting the stories, the nuances. That's the stuff that really gives you a lot of insight and then gives that data some valuable context well it gives it meaning yeah. like once you apply context to it like numbers on their own they're a bit useless see i think a good example of that is is the famous smart heating controller whether it be switchy or nest or hive or whatever all of which were claimed when they started although you don't hear much about it now to learn the heating pattern mm. the occupancy pattern the heating pattern of the house yes. and actually i i spent quite a bit of time three or four years ago now trying to under understand that because it seems to me that every household i know mm. has a completely different heating pattern and actually they don't they're not stable over time they're not no well, look at covid you know yeah. i mean that that's yeah. a kind of exactly. a great case in point i was in um a, a esb offices in dublin or these new new uh uh <laughs> somebody at the conference benny mcdonough here from tus just uh popped up showing me an indoor air quality monitor with a with a co2 reading <laughs> in the room we're in um but um uh, yeah uh, this is a building that was designed pre-covid uh for i think 1300 occupants it was intended and that's been 300 or so you know um so uh because everyone's working from home whatever you know so uh these things i actually put a question to the panel earlier at the at this at this conference about this you know Asset ratings, if we're talking about energy performance, are, are all well and good. But the idea of an asset rating with one standardized occupancy profile is right. really problematic, you know? Um, well, and I, I mean, I leaving aside COVID, I was looking about exactly that before COVID. And at my own household with four teenagers and two of us working, and I was working at home three out of five days. My wife was working shifts, including occasional nights. 
two of the, 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 the youngsters were at university and coming backwards and forwards occasionally at weekends, and the other two were at school. Mm. And actually, no day was the same. Yeah. Well, and I cu- think that's typical rather than strange, you know? Well, the curious thing about that is, so having had that conversation with Taj about the research that they were doing, they were expecting to see, like, they as soon as COVID hit, uh, like, solemnly, they, rub, they were rubbing their hands together with glee at the sort of data insights that this might afford yeah. them about how energy was being used. And he said, quite plainly, that... Uh, where they expected this big impact, what they found was no change whatsoever. And their hypothesis for that was everyone's too terrified of their boiler. So they didn't do anything. They just put up with conditions as they were. Well, I mean, I think there might be a more mundane explanation. In most houses, there was somebody home for most of most days, whether that be kids off school or people on shifts or whatever. And the notion that you switch the heating on at 7 a.m. and switch it off at 9 and then switch it on again at 4 Mm. goes back to the 1950s there mm. aren't any households like that anymore and we're all more flexible and so it's the whole, the whole thing is more anarchic so discerning the effect of covid is actually trying to compare two large numbers mm. I, mean. <laughs> mm. I think there's definitely scope for uh for a new way of looking a new look, way of looking at um at, uh, asset ratings and stuff uh, to and I don't buy the idea as much as I completely contradict myself by talking about when you're explaining you're losing. Um, uh, I <laughs> I don't buy the idea that that uh, that you have to dumb it down so much that people that people can't understand, um, especially if they're looking at buying a property or whatever. Um, uh, that the the nature of how they live their lives, the nature of their family, is going to affect the energy performance of the building. Right? I think I think you should be able to. Uh, you should be able to, to to let people engage and show show the role that they c- will will play that their their occupancy patterns their behaviors their preferences will, will play on uh on how the asset actually works you know um well, I, i've a very good example of that and i've been doing lots of work recently as you might imagine on condensation damp and mold for housing organizations and the conventional wisdom has always been to say well, the surveyor goes out from the housing organization, looks at the house that's full of mold and says, well, it's your problem. It's your lifestyle. Yeah. You know? yeah. And actually, we have to completely invert that and say, what is your lifestyle? How can we make the house work with your lifestyle? Because yeah. everybody's is different. Yeah. And so we've the, the reason we've got a crisis with mold at the moment, leaving aside the problem of the fuel price increases and so on, is that there's no dialogue between the people who know the techie stuff and the people who live there. The people mm. who know the techie stuff don't know what the people's lifestyle is like or their background. Well, the people who know the techie stuff often aren't very good around people. <laughs> and there are some, exactly. And there are some people telling the householders, oh, it's because you're doing this and this, it's all going wrong. Actually, it would be more helpful to tell them what they might do to make it go right or help them understand why it went right in the first place. Yeah. There's a great George Bernard Shaw quote about that, isn't there, which says that, um, when things go hopelessly wrong, people say you need a, a practical person to fix it. Actually, you need someone who understands why it ever went right in the first place. Yeah. So you need a th- theoretician or a scientist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, th- we had that problem in the, the place I was living last year, like a leasehold block where the guy, the property management company, you know, they have a finite budget of hours a year. Uh, and 
he was fielding complaints from people within the building about damp and mold constantly. So like, you know, a third of the budget that could have been spent on overseeing the that we were getting value for money was being wasted on people having to be told that they needed to ventilate their house properly and that if they didn't open the windows, this would be a problem and how to tell the difference between uh, the mold that's created from exhalation of saturated air and the problems that did occur where the drains on the roof were broken and it was coming into the wall, which was creating a problem with uh, damp on walls and the backs of cupboards. Like there were actual problems, but he didn't necessarily have the chance to to deal with them because he was faffing around, having an argument with the same people about whether it was their lifestyle or not. When mm. it's not strictly lifestyle, because everyone has broadly the same lifestyle in which they have no idea why things get moldy. Well, the housing ombudsman's report, Spotlight on Mold, is subtitled exactly that. It's not lifestyle. Mm. And it's all of the whole report is about a more nuanced uh, partnership kind of conversation between landlords and occupants about what contributes to them having a problem with mold. Mm. And, it, and it starts from the presumption that it's not their fault. And it's probably not the landlord's fault. It's a combination. Yeah. And it's things such as you've just. Uh, identified you know it's the overflowing gutters not maintained properly and it's the residents drying towels on the radiators and all those things are coming together uh, so we have to get to a point where we can have a richer conversation with occupants and that means we have to just as we're asking them to trust us we have to believe them you know? hmm. or believe what occupants say is a key, i think a key watchword because they tell you useful things and sometimes those things are not consistent with the data yeah man the moment you start interviewing people about the specifics or the the stories underlying the data the more you find yourself confounded by what you learn <laughs> yeah because it's actually richer and more complicated than you think right? yeah and infinitely be, more illuminating it would be a bit like a doctor who doesn't talk to his patient just tries to analyze the data of the person you know the symptoms and never even talks to the person because that's, you know, a lot of doctors who have a good bedside manner, they're the ones who are usually most successful because they talk to the person and they understand what's going wrong because there's more nuance and more context to an ailment than just looking at what the symptoms are. There's usually it's, something behind it. Well, they it's, look al for the it's also why quacks tend quite often do well, because if you've got a good bedside manner, even if you're spouting utter horse choice, um, uh, it can be very reassuring and it can actually help people to get better, even if you're, you know, even if you don't have anything effective to... to, to, so, to so snake oil, to come back to that, is... Yeah. Uh, Potentially yeah. as well, then. <laughs> in, a, in a medicine bottle, in this case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the placebo, you can't apply the placebo effect to ventilation, though. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't, <laughs> no. it doesn't I, quite, you can't desaturate the air by willing it, was, it to be so. Like, no, it's not something that either the landlord or the occupants can do on their own. Yeah. It has to be a team effort, a cooperative effort. Yeah, exactly. Picking up Alex's point, I was just, yeah. um, I think of my, my son, who's a doctor, and he he spent a time working in Malawi where the hospital had nothing, no CT scan, hardly any X-ray machine, no MRI. Uh, the, the best they had was an ultrasound scanner usually. And I said, why did you enjoy working there? Because he came back really fired up. And he said, because I had to be a doctor. Mm. If these mm. people walk in while I'm in a doctor in Leicester or somewhere, I just order, order about 12 tests and scans, give the patients some painkillers and wait two days for all the tests to come back and there's no 
there's no personal interaction. In that case, in Malawi, he had to talk to the people about what was wrong with them. He had to use his skills to diagnose the problem and then come up with a solution from a very limited resource. So yeah. it, it is about the dialogue, definitely, I think. I think the thing is, you know, on the placebo effect too, is that, um, uh, which relates to this, is that uh, just because sham treatments can have some benefit because of, of things like bedside manner or whatever, and, you know, people's belief in them. Um, well, th those benefits are not restricted to, to, to nonsense treatments. They apply to real ones as well. So if you believe in a real treatment, uh, you know, or a real measure, so if you believe in your, your ventilation system, whatever, um, uh, it may make you uh, healthier in a strange kind of a way as well, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's well, very complicated. As, as an industry, we're subject to that, aren't we? You know, everybody I know in the PASPAS community is a complete zealot for MVHR. Mm. And they won't hear anything said against it. Mm. Uh, and, okay, it's a great way of ventilating homes. But there are places where you wouldn't use it. But you can't persuade them of that. You have to have the MVHR. I know, I know. <laughs> and that's, again, another reason why I think what the ACB have done with their standards is so subversive. Because they've kind of, uh, the Institute has allowed them somehow to uh, to use PHP um, to come up with, uh, you know, uh, other standards based on the same architecture the same approach that uh that that for instance permit other other forms of of uh you know effective mechanical ventilation um and a, uh, a less dogmatic approach you would say you know um yeah well, i think it's you know horses for courses is a good expression for this there yeah. are lots and lots of different houses in both countries and some of them are quite small and some of them are quite difficult and some of them are big and easy and and if you look at where Passive House came from, it came from new builds mm. in relatively upmarket sectors. And what we've been trying to do is adapt it. And it's not surprising that we have to enrich the formula yeah. to make it adapt properly. I think so, there are there's definitely cases where, you know, I would defend with Passive House the fact that where it can be done and where it makes where you can show that it makes sense from a cost benefit perspective to do it, you, you know, I would wholeheartedly recommend doing it. Um but uh but you, it's not satisfactory. It's not sufficient in a climate emergency to be saying to people, uh, "It's this or nothing," um, and then and then leaving them on their own, uh, to, you know, consigning them to the to, to less proven stuff and to snake oil sales and so and so on. Uh, you know, you Practical have to be an example of that, isn't there? You know, I've been to lots of MVHR systems in social housing that don't work because they're clogged up because the filters never get changed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People don't understand that needs to be done, and they don't see it as their job. They see it as the landlord's job. Yeah. And and so what we've got is a technology that doesn't actually work for that kind of household in that tenure context. So we need to work on how can we make it work. Yeah. And my reaction so far has been don't put that kind of technology in. But clearly there are other mechanisms you can use. Yeah, there are ways more. still, but it requires uh, a committed landlord or a bit of ingenuity to find, like, you know, such as um the the, the best example probably. Um, and there are technical issues that need to be resolved with this is externally accessible MVHR units so, so that the filter replacement is taken out of the hands of the occupants. It's done by like, somebody. Like the meter being outside. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. You know. but, the problem, of course, is that the engineer wants the MVHR unit in the middle of the plan to I know. reduce the duct lengths and the bends and so on. So there's trade-offs, you know. Um, trade-offs, and you have to do that. Yeah. But you, this is just about systems design. You design the system to be appropriate for the circumstances. So Marion Bailey, when we had her on, she was telling us about uh, systems whereby they post filters out to the occupant of the house. 
which yeah. is they they buy them in bulk so they are cheaper. Yeah. They have a regular they have a regulated supply. They know that it's the right quality and the the posting out is a prompt for the yeah. for the action. So well, like there's no reason such a thing can't work, but you have to have buy-in. Well, this is the, the, and that's the point. What she's engaging with there uh, is the issue that absolutely needs to be engaged with, not just for the rental sector, for any anything other than the 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 uh, the self builder who's you know who's who's committed to to to, to building this themselves, you know, uh, and and is a complete zealot for themselves. You uh, you have to engage with people. You've got to find a way. Uh, to um, to show them uh, the benefits and the risks and so on. You know, the, the fact that they've got to manage these things, you know. Right. So aware that we are running out of our time, yeah. with Peter, because yeah. he's going to have to go. So the people we can trust now, so Rich and Oliver from last week, uh, the ECB, uh, who's the other Letty, one? Letty and Nate. Acan, but with 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 guidance from the the greybeards, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Then yes, yeah. The the greybeards to an extent that they're some not of them compromised, yeah. yeah. Uh, then we've said retrofit assessors if they are independent. So retrofit coordinators if they're independent. Coordinators, sorry, yep. Yeah. Uh, so you need the independence. You've got to check the numbers to see if you can trust them. Um, is there anyone else? I think suppliers need only to be trusted or should only be trusted if they can produce independently validated data on the performance of their their particular brand of snake oil. Yes. <laughs> so to any snake oil salesman out there or uh, purveyors of reasonable services, if you need a hand with assessing it and then marketing it, come talk to us, zapeiux.agency. Trust us. We, Are you actively trying to solicit work from snake oil sales? <laughs> well, we'll work with anyone once. Uh, when I, mean, you I work think at... one of the things that snake oil salesmen want is they want to change the world right away, and they want yeah. you to buy into their product and put it in your guide or put it in your standard or put it in your design. Actually, I think to get a product that's new and often quite good and clever and innovative to a point where you can reliably and with confidence specify it is about a year. Yeah. I think it takes that long and people should be disabused of the idea that they can just come in and change the world with it the next day. And also they should be discouraged from making um, over elaborate claims for performance from the outset, because yeah. as a recipient of, of bids from or proposals from snake oil salesmen, the thing that turns me off, almost immediately is when they make a, an outrageous claim yes. for how it will perform. Uh, you know, the, the good one was the, the smart air brick, mm. which turns out to be a quite a good product. But when it first appeared, they said, oh, this is, this is going to save 30% of the energy use in the house. And I immediately walked away because I just knew that couldn't <laughs> be true. Yeah. And it's, it took them nearly a year to rehabilitate themselves with me because of the making overclaiming. Yeah. Yeah, well, we've got this new. Um, uh, you you won't benefit from it, but I'm so I I always love to kind of point out the Brexit uh, uh, <laughs> negative dividend or whatever you know. Uh, yeah. But um, uh, we've got this new green greenwashing directive coming for, through the EU. Uh, so sort of green claims directive, which uh, I need to get my teeth into uh, understand what what, uh, what what it'll actually mean. But 
quite hopeful that it that it could muzzle a lot of the nonsense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I was really getting at is the fact that it was something we touched on earlier. Like a lot of people with great products, uh, great ideas, they struggle to articulate it because yes. they're not natural communicators. No, that's, that's true. And we don't want people to be too cautious as well. Uh, we so want, you know, yeah. We are, we are in the midst of a couple of projects working with people where we are helping them to discern what they can say about the product in a way that is accessible to ordinary people. So you don't have to spend your time explaining. You just, in marketing speak, you deliver the value proposition, you tell them the benefits. And then at the end of that story, once you've got them interested, you say, these are the numbers. This is our methodology. This is how transparent we are. Yeah. And maybe even taking it to the point and explaining where we think it might be flawed, it's, where it needs more work. Because- or, or the other side is it? It's, I have a very common experience these days of speaking to suppliers I know and, and, and explaining to them, you have a product that's a lot more significant than you realize, for instance, perhaps in terms of embodied carbon. And, you, you know, uh, so that goes on too. you know, people who are, who are under uh, appreciating or underselling uh, maybe because the benefits we're talking about haven't been recognized yet in, in body car yeah. case in point, you know. Um, I mean, also with new products, they're very often brought by techie people. Exactly. And actually, one of the things I learned working for Innovate UK as an assessor for years was you need techie people, but you also need marketing people and you need user groups and you need people who can do risk assessments and all that kind of stuff in order to understand what the, the complete context of what how this thing might work will be. And if they've just got technical expertise, that's sort of necessary but not sufficient to persuade me that there's a product that will work there. Yeah, absolutely. the case. All right. Um, okay. So on that, on that note, perhaps, is there anything you want to plug or say, Peter, before we, we let you depart? Because we're already keeping you now. I can see time, time is ticking. Yeah, that's good. No, I think we've we've had quite a wide-ranging discussion and we've wandered off and come back now and then, so it's been quite quite enjoyable, really. We'll have to have you back again, uh, whether it's in in uh in, you know, your new your new country or 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 before you depart, you know. Um Yeah. Yeah, suck sure. suck as, as much information out of your brain before you decide to kind of pack it in and head to the probably not the golf course i suspect you're not that kind of a fella um i know i'm not a golfer i must admit but um i think it's probably more before my brain sort of atrophies and can't do it anymore but <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, well, why I'm are you going to let do... that stop you yeah <laughs> <laughs> i could invent some new things couldn't i um yeah well I'm, i mean i'm going to be doing lots of things inside that, including work on some sustainable building materials in lesotho Oh, so wow. there'll be lots of things to kind of report on at some point when relevant. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that will be interesting, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. And uh, I look forward to listening to the podcast in due course. Excellent. Um, well, in keeping with who can you trust, we'll say the usual things. Join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IEGBC in Ireland. We need reviews. Please like, subscribe, share. If you enjoy this, you probably know someone else who will get something out of it. So please share it with them too. And uh, talk to us if you need to communicate about any of this stuff. Or if you just want to talk about this stuff. We do do lots of talking. And all that user research as well. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.